We really need Rennell on the djembe with that song. That would be good. That would be good. You guys ready for me to preach? You ready? Good, okay. Uh, when I was in seminary, the Lord was good and He gave me two part-time jobs. You know, when you go to seminary at 42, that's, you, yeah, you just need to pay the rent and uh, eat and stuff like that and send money to your daughter in college. So God was good and, and He gave me uh, two part-time jobs. One was with a ministry, one was with a business. Uh, the business I was with, uh, word spread quickly throughout the company that the, a 42-year-old seminary student was on the payroll. And so all the employees wanted to come by and see the weird guy, right? <laughs> How many 42-year-old seminary students are there in the world? Not too many, I think. Uh, yeah, I felt like the new animal at the zoo. I realized pretty quickly that things had radically changed for me. I was no longer Jim the CPA business guy. I was Jim the religious professional guy. And people wanted to come by and talk to me about their problems and their concerns. And, and uh, they had questions and they wanted to bounce their opinions off of me. And so I had suddenly become, in my first semester of seminary, a spiritual counselor, a spiritual advisor. So people would come and come to my little cubicle and they want to talk a little theology. Joy was a young Jewish woman. Uh, she just wanted me to tell her that her Judaism would take her to heaven. Glenn was a Mormon. And he wanted me to affirm that as a Mormon, he was indeed a biblical Christian. Bill was a Catholic. And Bill just wanted me to tell him that all his religious activity was a biblical pathway to heaven. Kathy was unfulfilled in her marriage. And she wanted me, she wanted me to tell her that it was okay to divorce this man simply because she was unfulfilled, quote-unquote, in her marriage. Ray was just a nice guy. He paid his taxes. He mowed his grass took care of his family. He even went to church sometimes, right? And he just wanted me to tell him that being a, a church-going nice guy would impress God. That was enough. He was a church-going nice guy. Surely God's going to let him into his heaven, right? That's what he wanted me to tell him. And Paul, the president of the company, he just wanted me to tell him there was no hell. That's what Paul wanted me to say. So early... In my first semester of seminary, I found out suddenly I was seen as a, thought, a theological authority. And the thing I learned very quickly is, while people will come and ask you many questions, there are very few who really want to hear what God says. They don't really care what God thinks. They're really only interested in you affirming what they think. They want you to affirm them in their presuppositions and predetermined views of God and life and sin and salvation, heaven, hell, and eternity. Have you noticed? Human beings are very strange creatures. Anybody noticed? Um, when it comes to clothes and shoes and watches and computers and cars, we want the authentic, genuine name brand, right? But what I found out in 25 years of ministries is that when it comes to eternal things, when it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes to God, when it comes to Christ, people will accept almost anything. People will take any kind of cheap imitation, any kind of shoddy reproduction, any kind of knockoff 
representation of the biblical gospel. People will, will swallow it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's because by and large, many people who call themselves Christians and sit in churches, they are biblically illiterate. And we've been talking about the fact that in many places there's a gospel is preached that is biblically unrecognizable in the last days. Many places. Gospel, a gospel is being preached that is biblically unrecognizable. At the mall, mankind demands a brand name. At church, any cheap imitation will do, it seems. As long as it's comfortable and user-friendly. Right? As long as it's comfortable and user-friendly. Joy, Glenn, Kathy, Ray, and Paul really didn't want to hear what God had to say. They simply wanted some religious professional to say, it's okay. However you want to live is fine. God's cool with however you want to live. That's really what they wanted me to say to them. Of course, those of you who know me know I didn't say that to them. <laughs> so they didn't come back by the cubicle very much. As we've been talking about the last few weeks, even in Christendom, name brand Christianity, biblical Christianity is sometimes a rare thing to find indeed. There's an old saying where I come from. You know, people, people are okay as long as the preacher doesn't start to meddle. Do you, know the, do you know the term meddle? As long as the preacher doesn't start to get into your life. He can preach all the abstract theology he wants as long as he's not getting into my life and stepping on my toes. Well, these last three sermons have been meddling sermons. And the fourth one in this series is going to be a meddling sermon as well. This is an impromptu series that, that really came out of the blue. It's just on real Christianity. It just came... I came off holiday and it was in my head and here it is. I didn't plan it, but obviously the Lord planned it. We're really just studying the words of Christ. That's all we've done in these three previous sermons and that's all we're going to do tonight. It's what real Christianity looks like. And if we, if we just listen to the words of Jesus, we realize that a lot of things we hear emanating from pulpits all around the world, it, it's not in conjunction. It does not agree with the words of Christ. I was telling someone earlier, that's why all we do here is this. We don't do denominationalism. We do this. If it's in here, we're going to talk about it. If it's not in here, we're not going to talk about it. This is all we do. God's Word is our sole authority. And we preach the Gospel according to Jesus. Not the Gospel according to anyone else, any denomination, any council, any creed. We preach the Gospel that is there to be seen in the New Testament. If you just read the words of Jesus, you realize that mental assent to the historical facts of Jesus, parroting a prayer, getting baptized, and maybe attending church a little bit, that is not Christianity in a biblical sense. Although that's what Christianity has devolved into in much of uh, the modern church. Jesus doesn't talk like that at all. In fact, Jesus says, hey, you better count the cost if you're going to go with me. This is how Jesus preaches. This is how 
He preaches. He's pristinely clear when it comes to the name brand Christianity. Salvation is discipleship. Discipleship is salvation. This has kind of been our our mantra for this series. Uh, Salvation is discipleship. Uh, Discipleship is salvation in the New Testament. There is no uh, dichotomy here. There is no difference. A call to discipleship is a call to salvation. If we rightly understand the words of Jesus Christ. This is our fourth sermon in this series. The first sermon was Mark chapter 10. Real Christianity sold out. Listen, if you haven't if you haven't listened to these and you'd like to, just go out on the podcast site. They're out there. The second sermon, Mark 13, entitled Real Christianity Bearing Fruit. The third sermon was Matthew 7, Real Christianity, The Narrow Way. And tonight's sermon will be Real Christianity a supreme love. A supreme love. We've been saying the last several weeks, Jesus never called anyone to be religious. He's never called anyone to church membership. Jesus never said these kinds of things. What did Jesus say? Go ye therefore and what? Make church members. Make disciples. Let me ask you, friend. Are you a disciple? That's salvation. There is no dichotomy. There is no distinction. Those terms are synonymous in the New Testament. I know the modern church has dumbed the Gospel down so much. Some of you may not even know that discipleship is synonymous with salvation. There is no biblical distinction. None. This is how Jesus talks about salvation. I'm going to start up with the text here. Verse 25, Luke chapter 14. Now great multitudes were going along with Him and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Have any of you ever heard this text preached? Some of you have heard it preached. Praise God. You know, in your average church anymore, you would not hear this text read or preached. It's just a little bit offensive. It's a little caustic. Uh, it might ruffle feathers. It might make some people uncomfortable. You just wouldn't hurt it. You just would not hear it read in many places anymore. Jesus turns to the multitude and He says, if you don't hate your whole family, you can't be My disciple. You can't go with Me. This is the Word of God. Have you ever heard an evangelist open with that? You know, what we're learning in this series is either Jesus doesn't know how to evangelize or we don't know how to evangelize. And my money's on Christ. My money is on Christ. Last week we saw how radically different Jesus presents the Gospels than do most moderns in the church. Jesus' call is extreme. It is absolute. Beloved, Jesus' call, I'll say it again, it's extreme. It is absolute. He does not spin the truth. He does not market the truth. We know that the modern church is into marketing, man-made marketing techniques. 
Jesus is not interested in that. He's not interested in dumbing down the truth. He's not interested in shallow commitments and nominal followers. He, he's not interested in producing religious people who merely attend church. Jesus is not interested in any of these things. What's he, what is He interested in? Someone tell me. What have we been talking about for four weeks? Disciples. This is what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in Disciples, it's a, call, it's a call to sold out, fruit bearing, narrow way, supreme love, disciples. This is how Christ talks about salvation. It has nothing to do with religion. It's about being hopelessly in love with Him. Amen? That's biblical Christianity. That's biblical Christianity too. I'm going I'm to expound on the text in just a minute, so bear with me. We're going to explain the whole hating your family thing. So stay, stay with me. The two most oft-repeated and recorded sayings of Jesus in the Gospel, you could probably guess the first one. It is, the first one is, follow me. Jesus is always saying, follow me. Follow me. This is, yeah, His most oft-repeated phrase. The second one that appears six times in the Gospels, twice in Matthew, twice in Luke, once in Mark, once in John, and I'll read it to you from Matthew 10.39. Jesus says this, He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Six times in the Gospels. You know, I've talked to Christians and, and, and they're not even really quite sure what that means. You know, I'll ask them about this text. So what, do you, what do you think that means? I'm not sure what it means. Well, I'm going to give you the Jim Albright paraphrase. So, if you're not sure what it means, maybe this will help. Maybe not. Maybe it will just confuse you. But this is the Jim Albright paraphrase. Jesus says, if you found your life in the temporal... If you are preeminently enamored with uh, and infatuated with this life and the things of this world, you will lose it all. You will lose it all, Jesus says. But, Jesus says, if I am uppermost in your heart, your mind, and your life, if you have given yourself away to me even as I have given myself away to you, you have indeed found real lasting, satisfying, infinite, eternal, God-sized life. Jesus said it six times. Jesus is to be our supreme love, beloved. He is to be our supreme love. If we've learned anything in reading the Bible in the years we've been together, as we study and read, we have discovered, and I say it often from this pulpit, it's not about you. How many of you know that all of this is not about you. How many of you know that the universe does not revolve around you? How many of you know it? Okay, some of you have learned this. That's good. Because the fact of the matter is, the universe does not revolve around Jim Albright. It revolves around someone infinitely greater. His name is Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's always been about Him. It'll always be about Him. And all of our lives should be lived out in uh, perspective to Him, in relation to Him. It's about Jesus. It's not about us. And when we really get that, we begin to taste what God-sized life really is. Jesus says, if you don't hate your whole family, you can't be My disciple. What's He saying? He's simply saying that My disciples will love Me so supremely that by comparison, it could be called hate. We're going to talk more about it. This is how Jesus talks about salvation. It's not pray this prayer and you'll be fine. 
Jesus never says that. Jesus says, if you want to go with me, you must love me supremely. You must love me supremely. This is the Word of God. Obviously, none of us do this perfectly, but for the true believer, for the born-again Christian, this is the deepest desire of our hearts to love the Lord as the law says with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obviously, the whole Gospel is not here in Luke 14, 25-35. Obviously, this is not the whole Gospel. But you know what's here in its entirety? The attitude that Jesus requires of anyone who will come to Him. The mindset of absolute supreme love and devotion to Jesus Christ. That's here. That's really what this text is about. The whole Gospel's not here, but the attitude that's required to come to Jesus and know Him and walk with Him and love Him and serve Him. It's here. It's here. It's a heart hopelessly in love with Jesus Christ. It's discipleship. It's salvation. Matthew 10 both amplifies and clarifies Luke 14. Let's turn over there real quick if you want to. You can turn with, you, with me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Listen to what Jesus says. Again, these are the words of Jesus. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against uh, her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the enemies... Pardon me, will be the members of his household. How many of you have ever heard this text preached? A couple. Good. Okay. This is another text you're not likely to ever hear read in your average megachurch in the U.S. Why will a man's enemies be the members of his own household? Some of you already know. Some of you uh, have experienced this in your past. Some of you may be living with this. Jesus talks about the enmity between the real Christian and the world in John 15. Jesus says, the world has hated me and it will hate you if you belong to me. These are the words of the Son of God. Some of you have experienced this. Sometimes this happens even within the family. Yes, Jesus Christ can heal a broken family if all families are in submission to His Lordship. But if one member genuinely comes to Christ and the others do not, some of you know this firsthand, there can be tremendous upheaval and discord in that family. Of course, Jesus is talking to Jews. For a Jew to leave Judaism and follow Christ, he, he lost everything, right? Same thing happens uh, for a Muslim, right? It's not as hard for us. But Jesus says it might be. It might be. Your family may turn on you. They won't understand you. You're the light. They're in the dark. It can be very difficult. Some of you know what I'm talking about. God says it in 2 Corinthians 6.14, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Every time I get to talk to a young woman in the church, Karen and I always tell them the same thing. Always tell them the same thing. Don't ever marry an unbeliever. Basta. <laughs> Don't do it. 
It's the worst thing you could do. Don't do it. Marry a Christian. Marry a Christian. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And he who loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. This clarifies the language in Luke 14 about hating the family. Of course, Jesus does not call us to literally hate our families. We are commanded by Scripture to love our families and to care for our families. The Luke 14 language is simply a Semitic expression, a Hebraism that expresses preference. It expresses priority. I love Christ so much. I love my family, but it's not like the love that flows between a disciple and his Lord. It's not like that. That kind of love is supreme to family. Love. This is the Word of God. It is that kind of love is above all others. That's all Jesus is saying. Jesus says, that's how it is with me and one of my own. There's this supreme bond of love. It transcends everything. Everything is subordinate to the love I have with my, with my disciple. This is the point that Jesus is making. It's a supreme love, a dominating love, a matchless love. It's how Jesus talks about conversion. It's how Jesus talks about Christianity. Let me ask you, friend, is that how it is with you and Jesus? Is that how it is with you and Jesus? Beloved, if we call ourselves a disciple, that's how it's supposed to be. I'm not making this up. This is the Word of God. While most church members never love Christ like that, a real Christian does. It's extreme and it's uncompromising. In in this next verse is the third most oft-repeated and recorded saying of Jesus. We've had the first and the second. This one is the third. It happens five times in the Gospels. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Jesus calls his disciples to take up their own cross and follow him. He says if you're not willing to take up your own cross and follow him, you cannot be his disciples. Over over the years, I've heard I've heard a lot of people say a lot of dumb things about what this means, what Jesus is actually saying to us here. And they try to bring the cross into modern context and put some metaphor on it. But one of the first things you learn in seminary, and of course this is common sense anyway, anytime you want to understand what's being said in a text, you want to interpret a text, what you really need to do, we really need to understand what Peter, James, and John heard. It's not what you hear. That's... it's. What Jesus means is what they hear. What did the first century hearer understand when Jesus talks about uh, the cross? What do they understand that to mean? What? Death. It's not a metaphor for some hard thing in your life. Jesus is talking about death. You must die to yourself. It's very clear. It's very clear. He's talking about the, the cross was only used for one thing. It was to kill a man. Peter, James, and John knew exactly what he was talking about. He's saying, you must die. 
If you want to be my disciple, you must die. You must die to your B.C. priorities, your B.C. affections, your B.C. desires, your B.C. plans, and your B.C. dreams. Does anybody know what B.C. stands for? Before Christ. You have to die to all that B.C. stuff. You have to die to all that stuff. <laughs> this is what the Lord Jesus is saying to us. Matthew 10.16, Jesus says it like this, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. The true believer is ready and willing to deny his B.C. or pardon me, yeah, turn his back on his B.C. priorities. He's caught a glimpse of Christ and everything else in the cosmos pales by comparison. Amen? Nothing compares to the beauty, the compelling beauty and desirability of Jesus Christ. Nothing compares. Wow, this is something the natural man cannot even begin to, to fathom that he could ever do. The regenerate man hears it. And he loves it. And quite, quite frankly, it's irresistible to him. Yes, I'll go with Christ. Of course I'll go with Christ. You try to stop me from going to Christ and walking with my Lord and Savior. Try to stop me. You know, that's the, that's the passion. That's the heartbeat of one who has truly seen Him and knows Him. It's what we see clearly illustrated in the two parables in Matthew 13. It's the B.C. guy and the A.C. guy contrast. I mentioned these parables a couple of weeks ago. You know, uh, one B.C. guy finds a treasure in a field and he becomes an A.C. guy after Christ. And he, what does he do? He, he goes and sells all that he has that he might have that field. Well, what's the field? The field's a metaphor for what? Jesus Christ. So, his, his B.C. priorities out the door. Now, it's his after Christ priorities are Jesus. And whatever Jesus says, true conversion. True Christianity. The other BC guy in Matthew 13, he, 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 was, he finds the pearl of great price. And he becomes an AC guy and he sold all that he had in order that he might acquire that pearl. 2 Corinthians 5.17, God says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Listen. I know most of you know this text, but listen. The old things have what? Someone tell me. Oh, the old things, the B.C. things have they've passed away. But the new things, no, he says, behold, new things have come. The B.C. things are gone. Man, I'm so in love with Jesus. I'm an A.C. guy now after Christ. I'm in love with Him. And I want to do what He says. I want to honor Him with my life. I want to glorify Him with my life. That's my first priority. doesn't mean I don't love my family. doesn't mean I, I'm not a good citizen. That's, no, it doesn't mean I'm not a good friend or a good co-worker. Of course that's not what it means. God commands us to be all those things. But it means preeminently, I am wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. I am wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. Everything else comes next. Everything else. It's real Christianity. That's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. The B.C. guy must die. But the beautiful thing, beloved, I want you to hear me say this, the beautiful thing that the real believer finds is that his B.C. priorities were too small. Amen? They were too small. They were too average to live for. It didn't fill up his life anyway. 
But the AC priorities are mind expanding and heart exploding as we come to know Christ, as we get to know Him better, as we study His Word, as the Holy Spirit indwells us. We find the purpose for which we were created. You know, you get a taste of the AC stuff, you'll never go back to the BC stuff. I'm not saying we're perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the direction and focus of our life is Jesus Christ and all He brings to our life. A great example I thought of as I was studying Paul. Paul was at the top of the food chain in in Jerusalem. He was a big deal. He was a Pharisee. He was perfect. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. He says, I'm perfect. I'm a perfect Jew. That's B.C. Paul. Then listen to what A.C. Paul says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Why? Because I'm a good Baptist. I'm a good Methodist. I'm a good Anglican. No. What does he say? For the sake of Jesus. For the sake of Jesus. More than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but dung, he says in the King James. Actually, the literal Greek is refuse. He says, it's all that BC stuff is refuse to me compared to knowing the living God in Christ. Beloved, this is just New Testament Christianity. I know it probably sounds alien to many of you, but this is just simply New Testament Christianity. Look here, Paul, uh, uh, Luke writes, verse 28, for which one of you, verse 28, uh, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Enough to complete it. We've talked about it some already in this series. So much of modern Christendom is, and, and the Gospels pres- presented in such a slack, loose, limp way that it's, it sounds as easy as falling into bed to uh, become a Christian. But Jesus says, what does He say? He said, you better sit down and count this thing out. Figure this thing out. Do you really want to go with Me? It involves a cross. Oh yes, we'll talk about the resurrection. It involves a cross. But every Christian knows it involves a resurrection. Yes, there's a kind of death when we go with Christ. We're dying to the B.C. stuff. But there is a breathtaking resurrection as we come alive to the A.C. stuff. Amen? Amen? This is how Jesus talks about salvation. You know... You hear it said if you read much about theology that some good theologians they'll, they'll use the term easy believism. That just means, oh, you pray the prayer, you're in. You know, this is not the biblical gospel. Jesus, this is not what Jesus talks about. It's not how he talks about salvation. It's not an easy call to self-fulfillment. It's a hard call of self-denial. This is what the Lord says. I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, Jesus is not, making, is not offering a makeover to us, but a takeover. Amen? He's not offering a makeover. It's not just to dust you up and make you a little nicer and a little better, and, and maybe your life will be better because you're living by the principles of God. That's not what it's... It's not about a makeover. He's God. You're not. It's a takeover. 
it's, it's real Christianity, friends. <laughs> it saddens me. I hear this almost nowhere else. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I know there are good churches out there. I know there are. <laughs> and I know well-meaning men dumb down the Gospel. But I say, why dumb it down? I'm having a conversation right now with, with some people. And I'm just I'm slapping them around just as hard as I can with the truth. I'm not trying to be easy with them. I'm saying, this is what God says. They don't like that. I say, I don't care. It's what He says. Now, unless I misquoted Scripture, then I'm not even involved here. This is what God says. Beloved, sometimes we just need to be bold. We just need to say what it is. And let the chips fall. We don't need to be afraid to share the truth of God. We need to be honest with people. He's God. We're not. We either come on His terms, but we don't come at all. Jesus says, I'm not merely calling you to church membership and attendance. I'm calling you to sold-out, fruit-bearing, narrow-way, supreme love, discipleship. And that's what these two, these two uh, illustrations are about. I won't read them, but that's what they're about. John Stott's a well-known uh, English theologian. He comments on this text. Listen to what he says. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who allowed themselves to become only somewhat involved in Christianity. Listen to this. Enough to be respectable, but not ever enough to be uncomfortable. Let me ask you, beloved. What does your Christianity look like? Are you willing to go with Jesus if it's uncomfortable? Are you willing to go with Jesus if it costs everything? Or, you know, have you set Jesus off to the side? Are you willing to follow Him? Is He really your Lord? These are important questions for every one of us. Important questions for every one of us. Jesus said, if you want to go with Me, you better think about it. C.S. Lewis uh, understands, he understands all that we've been talking about and he kind of summarizes it really well in mere Christianity. Let me, listen, let me share this with you real quick. Christ doesn't say, I want so much of your time and I want so much of your money and I want so much of your work. I want, what's he going to say? I want you. Biblical Christianity. I want you. No reserves. No holding back. No hedging. No standing on the fence. I want you. I don't want your stuff. I want you. I want you. This is the Gospel. I have not come to torment your natural self, Jesus says. These are the words of C.S. Lewis. I have come to kill it. Half measures are worthless. I will give you a new self. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Then Lewis says this, There is no bargaining with the Son of God. <laughs> we come on His terms. Or we don't come at all. Jesus never called anyone to nice, proper, manageable religion. He calls us to radical discipleship. Verse 33, So therefore, no one of you can be My disciple who does not give up all of His possessions. What is Jesus saying to us here? Is He saying we literally have to sell all our stuff to become a Christian? Of course He's not saying that. But He's saying that transaction has already happened in your heart. You have uh, subordinated your concern for your stuff to Christ. He is your Lord. You are merely a steward. If Jesus says give it all away, you'll gladly do it. That's what disciples do. You don't have to sell your stuff to become a Christian. 
But you do have to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's what the issue is here in this verse. You remember the rich young ruler? He, he, his supreme love was his money. Jesus said, go sell it all. Give it to the poor. Follow me. He said, I can't do it. I love my stuff. Jesus says, you can't go with me. It was an idol in his heart. He loved his money more than he loved God. Beloved, you don't have to sell everything to become a Christian, but here's the deal. If He asked you to do it, you would. If He asked you to do it, you would. With joy. Real Christianity. Real Christianity. Our love of Christ and devotion to Christ dominates everything else in our lives. And we've seen this in the text. It dominates our relationships and our families. Uh, verse 26, it even dominates our own life. Verse 27, we, we're willing to, to die to all of our B.C. Uh, priorities. Here in verse 33, where uh, Jesus is Lord over our possessions. He is our supreme love and devotion. Verse 34, Therefore salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, uh, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's been some confusion about this statement over the years. It's really quite simple. You know, some people won't even know how does it fit the context. Jesus is talking about salt that becomes tasteless. Well, any of you that know anything about pure salt know that it never, it never loses its flavor. Pure salt never loses its flavor. Only salt that's been corrupted with some foreign element, will lose its flavor. Two weeks ago, we looked at that parable of the souls. You remember the two kind, there were two kinds of souls that appeared to be Christian. They even, one of them even received the Word with joy, but they fell away due to persecution and affliction. The other falls away because of the worry of the world and the love of money. They appeared to be Christians, but they were not. They weren't real salt. They lost their flavor. They lost their saltiness. This is the illustration that Jesus is putting in front of us. Of course, we understand we, we can never be totally pure in the sense that we become sinless. That's not the imagery here. The imagery here is that our love for Christ is uttermost and it is supreme. I'm going to interject this. I think I've said this on every sermon in this series. We don't have to become disciples to become Christians. We have to become disciples because we've fallen in love with Jesus. If, you know, we preach that we are saved uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't, we're not saved by works. I'm not preaching works up here. I'm not preaching that you can be justified by works. That's not what I'm saying. You don't have to become a disciple to be a Christian. But you will become a disciple if you are a Christian. If you've met Him. If you've met Him, you are a disciple. I'm finished. I have one more illustration for you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he likens Jesus Christ. I want you to get this. The metaphor is Jesus is the sea. He's the sea, okay? He's the sea. That's a metaphor for Jesus. Lewis says, many come up to the sea, but they never go in. He says, some actually get in, but all they do is dabble and splash, careful not to get out of their own depth, holding to the lifeline that connects them to the safety of the temporal shore. 
Then he writes about the essence of true discipleship. True Christianity. Listen to Lewis. The lifeline is, is really a death line. <laughs> you know, if you're still hanging on to some temporal lifeline because you don't really trust Jesus, that He'll come through for you, that He's not sovereign, that He can't make it happen for you. If you're still hanging on to... Lewis says it's a death line. I love that imagery. He's exactly right about that. He says swimming lessons are far better than a lifeline to shore. Right? Learning to walk with Christ is far better than hanging on to some temporal thing it's going to burn up in the judgment. Swimming lessons. Swimming lessons. That's what we all need, beloved. Swimming lessons. Listen to what he says. God and Satan agree. Dabbling and splashing are of little consequence. What matters, what God desires and Satan fears is precisely that further step out of our depth, out of our control, and into the deeps. And what I've been challenging you to do these last four Sundays is to go deep with Christ. No more nominal Christianity. No more Sunday afternoon Christianity. I, man, I, you know, no more just church going. I mean, I want you to come to church. You need to come to church. We need to fellowship together. We need to see what God says to us. We need to sing His praises. Coming to churches, you need to do that. If you're a believer, you should do it. You should never neglect that. That's the Word of God to us. But beloved, you're supposed to be living it radically out there. And you need to be bringing converts in here. You, know, you need to be bringing them in. Because you're living your life, your, life of, your life of devotion to Jesus in front of them. And they're seeing it. And you're having conversations about the sufficiency and beauty of Christ. Jesus is not selling some cheap, shoddy, imitation, knockoff God. He's offering Himself. It's name brand Christianity. It's sold out, fruit bearing, narrow way, count the cost, supreme love, discipleship. That's what Jesus has called us to. And as I did last week, I'm just going to challenge you again, beloved. Examine yourselves, as Paul told the Corinthians. Examine yourselves. Have you been playing religion with God? Or are you a disciple? It's an important question. And I ask you that in love. Very few people would ever ask you that question. Only a pastor or maybe some mature Christian in your life. Have you examined your faith? Are you a disciple? Are you just leaning on your religion? So beloved, I think this will be the last, of this, the last sermon in this series. Understand, Jesus is not calling us to be religious. He's not calling us to be church members. He's calling us to be disciples. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know how we ever got it so messed up, really. I don't know how men get away with watering down the truth. I thank You, Lord, that You are frank with us. You are honest with us. You don't try to market the Gospel. You just tell us what it is. So, Lord, I pray that if there are any here Lord, who have just simply been doing religion, I pray, Father, that You would convict our hearts. That You would give us a life-changing glimpse of Your beauty and Your glory. Father, that we might be real disciples. 
We all confess our sin before You, our ever-present sin. None of us are perfect, Lord, but we do what Your Word says. We confess it, and You are faithful and just to cleanse us. So Lord, we, we bring our sin before You tonight and we give it to You. And we receive that beautiful washing of grace, that, that rain of grace that comes down upon us from the Lord Jesus. So Lord, we leave here clean tonight. And I pray that we would live Your Word. That we would be Word doers. That we would be disciples in the Word. That we would be salt and light. And many, many, would come to You through our lives and our testimony. That is our heart's desire. Jesus, in Your name, Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing our closing chorus. Some of you won't know it, but you can jump in. It's not too hard. Ancient words have a true Changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing you. Have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. We're uh, planning a picnic, so please stay tuned to your uh, your emails. If we don't have your email address, please fill out a form in the back. I think that's the end of that series. I know it's been a strong series. I know God has really challenged every one of us down to our toenails. If we're paying attention, that includes me. I think next week we'll, we'll probably begin, if we don't do the picnic, we'll begin a, a verse-by-verse look at Philippians. I think that's what, we will, ha- what will happen. Um, so get ready. Read Philippians on your own. Um, and uh, let's get ready to see what God has to say to us from that great uh, epistle from the Apostle Paul. You guys have a great week. Go be good disciples. Go glorify Jesus. Amen.